This is the first of three podcasts presenting three great scenes in cinema. There are countless great scenes in cinema, but I have chosen these specifically because they each possess atomic weight. They are so finely conceived, closely arranged, and precise in their delivery that although they last but a few moments, sometimes even just seconds, they each contain so much more than their physical and temporal spaces. Once examined, their meaning expands exponentially. That expansion can be emotional, cultural or cinematic. This first podcast examines how atomic weight can expand emotionally. It is January 1931, and although Hollywood made the transition to sound in 1927, you're watching a silent movie. It is made by the world's most famous filmmaker. So famous, he is the most famous person in the world. Or at least the character he plays is the most instantly recognisable. Charlie Chaplin is his name, his character's name is The Little Tramp, and the movie you're watching is City Lights. Each day as The Little Tramp makes his way about the city, he passes a young woman selling flowers on the side of the street. Played by Virginia Cheryl, she is blind and whenever he can, the tramp buys a flower from her, and whenever she gives it to him, their hands touch. Through a simple misunderstanding, the flower seller believes the tramp to be a millionaire, and in turn, he tries to find a way to arrange for an operation that will grant her her sight. Through a madcap coincidence, the tramp comes into a fortune that presents him with the opportunity. The operation is a success, but in the meantime, the tramp is flung in jail and by the time he is released, not only can the flower girl see, she has opened a flower shop and her business is blooming. Walking through the city, the tramp happens upon the shop and sees the woman working inside. She sees him, but of course does not recognise him. Nonetheless, humoured by his gaze, she comes out of the shop and offers him a flower. And then she puts a coin in his hand. Through the touch, she suddenly realises who he is. The tramp cannot believe what he is seeing. It is as if the flower girl were a new person. And what does she see? Not the mysterious millionaire who had so generously paid for her operation. Suddenly, the image she has been carrying in her head, the vision of the kind and wealthy man, crumbles. And as the tramp sees her face change to shock, his heart breaks. Now, don't forget that this is all playing out without a single word being spoken. If the story had dialogue, the entire premise would have foundered. The very first time the tramp would have bought Cheryl's flowers, the audience would have heard him say, thank you. Then we would have heard a reply, you're welcome, and over time they would have struck up longer conversations. But Chaplin had insisted on making this film a silent picture, and so the voice is not the recognisable signifier, it is what you feel. Now remember that this movie was released in 1931, two years after the Wall Street crash. The Great Depression had seen millions of people around the globe lose their jobs, their homes and almost all their worldly goods. Therefore, City Lights is not about the little tramp. It is about every man and every woman. Which means that the flower girl looks at the tramp not in confusion, but in correction. Once blind, she sees what no one else in the city can see. She sees beyond the surface, past the tramp's torn and tattered rags. In that moment, the flower girl was seeing her face in his face. Empathy is the primal need in any story. Without it, the audience will not be interested in the characters. 
In seconds, the characters switch from poor to rich, to poor, and back to rich again. They transform from being outcasts to being accepted, from being ignored, invisible, unseen, and unrecognised. There is one final layer to it. At the time, Chaplin's fame surpassed everyone else on the planet, be they politicians, princes, or war heroes. Everyone in the cinema knew what he looked like, except the blind flower girl. So she only recognised him when she touched him. But who in the audience has ever touched a movie star? It is early 1955 and we are sitting in a garden in Long Beach, New York. There, two men are talking quietly. Vito Corleone and his son Michael, played by Marlon Brando and Al Pacino. The first thing to note about this scene is that although the film is adapted from Mario Puzo's best-selling novel The Godfather, you won't find any corresponding passage in the book. The reason being that director Francis Ford Coppola felt that Puzo had either intentionally avoided or decided he couldn't depict the moment where the Don handed his power over to his son. Remember, at the start of the picture, Michael was the white sheep in a very dark family. He was the law-abiding war hero. At the wedding sequence that opens the film, Michael had told his then-girlfriend and future wife Kay, played by Diane Keaton, a shocking story about his father's brutally criminal ways. And he ended off by telling her, That's my family, Kay. It's not me. But when the Don was shot, and as he lay in hospital, Michael came to his aid. It marked the beginning of his reluctantly, but ever so incrementally, taking command of the family instead of his older brothers. Coppola knew the audience needed a scene where the two men resolved their differences. So he called in Robert Tan, who, a number of years earlier, had script-doctored another great gangster picture, Bonnie and Clyde. Coppola called up Tan and said, I need to show that the two men love each other. What resulted was a scene that initially appears to show the Don, at the end of his life, expressing a regret that things had not turned out the way he wanted. Or indeed, as he says, what he wanted for his son. I never, I never wanted this for you. More than that, he is apologising for, and confessing to, the sins he committed to secure the safety and prosperity of his family. But then, having heard his father's regret and apology, Michael says, We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. That may sound as though Michael were accepting his father's words as an expression of love. But, on further examination, there was more to Michael's reply. Coppola's aim was to make not just a gangster picture, but also a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. So, though he needed love to be expressed between father and son, he also needed a melancholic, if not dark, undercurrent. Town gave it to him, for in that one line, Michael not only accepts his father's apology, but also admits that he too has become part of his father's darkness. The two men know that they are both damned by the same sins, that they are both evil men. Michael says, we'll get there. Not, I'll get there. If he had said that, it would have meant that Michael truly aimed to legitimise the family business, stop its criminal practices and go straight. But he doesn't. He says, we'll get there. When the Don said, when it was your time that, that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone, 
Governor Corleone something. Another Petro Novanta. The subtle suggestion was that it was his aim to turn the political sphere into an extension of the Corleone Empire, which is precisely the tragedy that happens in part two. Let's look at Thelman Louise. From an Oscar-winning screenplay written by Callie Curry, Ridley Scott directed Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis on an adventure of two women only ever intended to be an enjoyable weekend break. But when Thelma is sexually assaulted in a parking lot at the back of a roadside bar and Louise shoots the attacker, they become fugitives from justice and their journey takes them through the increasingly fraught landscapes of Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico and Arizona. Released in 1991, the movie was the focus of considerable controversy. But really, that was because it dared to hold up a mirror to its audience. And by switching genders, the filmmakers exposed a cultural double standard. The privilege of patriarchy that created a space for, encouraged and gave cultural license to, casual sexism, chauvinism and misogyny, was inverted for all to see. But for me, the genius of the film is that it resisted the temptation to put the protagonists on a soapbox and have them deliver modern-day sermons. Instead, it relies on iconography to achieve its atomic weight. Firstly, we have two women driving the iconic turquoise 1966 Ford Thunderbird. Besides the fact that its low-slung horizontal design lends itself very neatly to the cinemascope format, the car itself immediately harkens back to the decade of great social change in America. The civil rights movement and women's liberation challenged tradition and made possible great advancements. The Thunderbirds logo expresses just as much, an eagle symbolising freedom. But look at the clothes that Thelma and Louise wear and you will realise that as the story progresses, their appearances change and their denim jeans, hats and t-shirts make them look more and more like cowboys. By extension, that means their automobile is more like a horse. In turn, that means that they are increasingly challenging and appropriating positions and postures that, by tradition, reside in the male domain. But gradually, that domain, that landscape, transforms from male into female. Just look at the sequence after they've picked up JD, the hitchhiker played by Brad Pitt, in a career-making cameo. Travelling along the interstate, Louise spots the police up ahead and quickly drives off the road and through an oil field laden with pumping rigs. This is where they are safe, but not just because they are off the interstate and out of sight of the police. In a desert, this is one of the few fertile places, and as such, it symbolises a female terrain. But that scene happens about 40 minutes into the picture, and the one I wish to examine happens about a half an hour from the end. Intent on avoiding Texas, Louise is driven into Arizona and late at night they are heading into Monument Valley. In her screenplay, Curry had suggested that the music to play over the scene should be Moment of Weakness by Pat McLaughlin. Have 
But in post-production, it was felt that a better fit would be the Ballad of Lucy Jordan, originally written and recorded in 1974 by Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. The morning sun touched lightly on the eyes of Lucy Jordan In a white suburban bedroom In a white suburban town Five years later, Marianne Faithfull released a more resolute, yet delicate, and ultimately anthemic cover. And with her dreamy, breaking vocal, wisely, that was the one selected. The morning sun touched lightly on the eyes of Lucy Jordan In a white suburban bedroom In a white suburban town Thelma and Louise take turns as they drive through the night down into the canyon. As the music plays, Scott and his editor Tom Noble opted for a series of unique dissolves between the faces of our heroines. It is as if their personalities are becoming one. The motif recalls one of the seminal movies from one of Scott's favourite directors when he was starting out in the business. Ingmar Bergman's persona, where the identities of the two women, Lee Vullman and Baby Anderson, seem to merge. And quite fittingly, in this sequence, we see Thelma and Louise entering the safest and most peaceful stretch of their journey. The canyon here serves as a refuge, a haven, a womb. If the car is a phallic symbol, the canyon is ionic. Eventually Louise pulls the car over and steps out. She just looks at the canyon, at the sky, and smiles in wonder. After a moment, Thelma appears behind. What's going on? Nothing. And they continue on their way. In the safety of the canyon, the women committed to a decision that did not need to be declared. The next podcast will look at scenes from which atomic weight expands culturally. <laughs>